From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 2985 You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into uh, the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Tuesday, still out in the great state of California, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. Thank you so much. Uh, trying to work here with the computer and get all squared away here. Uh, I think we're now, we're now working here, so that's good. Uh, how are you doing? Terrific, thank you very much. Good. Very good. Very so, good. Uh, so I, I am not a church father. How, how well, do, kind of, you kind of are. How do I become a church father? It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> well, I think to your kids, you are a church father, but that, that's probably another show, another springboard topic for another day. Yes, we're going to talk about the fathers of the church and what makes someone a church father per se. You know, there's the great Eastern fathers, the great Western fathers, etc. Some are canonized, some are not. Some are bishops, some are not. So, first of all, a simple definition the so called fathers of the church are saintly writers of the early centuries whom the Church recognizes as her special witnesses of the faith, uh, namely antiquity, orthodoxy, holiness, and approval by the Church are the four main prerogatives to be classified as a father of the Church, per se. The Church fathers are commonly divided into the Greek and the Latin fathers. It is now generally held that the last of the Western fathers of the Latin Church closed with St. Isidore of Seville, who died in around 636, and the last of the Eastern fathers of the Greek Church, of the Eastern Church, uh, was St. John Damascene, who died around 749. So what makes someone a father of the church? Well, I've given you a hint by giving you those four uh, prerogatives, the antiquity, the orthodoxy, holiness, and approval. So as the concept developed to qualify as a father of the church, an individual eventually had to meet those four basic criteria. Again, he had to possess antiquity, orthodoxy, holiness or sanctity, and approval by the church. Those who lacked one or more of these qualities were not referred to as fathers, but rather as ecclesiastical writers or church writers. I think that's an important uh, distinction to make. So now let's look at the four tests or the four prerogatives or the four criterion. First, 
is antiquity, referred to uh, the age in which the individual lived. The age of the fathers covered the period from the first century when Jesus and his apostles lived uh, through to the age of St. John of Damascus, or St. John Damascene, again, who died around 749. The second test, orthodoxy or correct teaching, is a little more subtle. It is complicated by the fact that what is considered orthodox in one age may be considered heterodox or even heretical in a later age, uh, depending on what a church council validly convened did with that particular teaching. Did it embrace it or reject it as heretical? So, so that second test can be a little bit more tricky. Thirdly, uh, holiness of life is still harder to determine. Holiness can be expressed in, one, in, in more than one way, right? Uh, such as by gentleness towards one's opponents due to love for the persons involved, and by harshness towards them, towards one's opponents, due to the love for the truth that they are denying or fighting against. Uh, both those who displayed their holiness by being kind to their opponents and those who displayed it by being harsh to their opponents came to be regarded as church fathers in both camps because if a person, uh, so if a person has been given the title of saint, it is an indicator that they left a reputation for holiness. So their zeal for the truth may come off a little harsh towards their, their opponent who's denying the truth, or they may come off very uh, patient and loving towards their opponent uh, because they want to convert the opponent. So, so individuals in both camps, we say, could be considered uh, ones with sanctity and holiness. And the fourth and final criterion, approval by the church, is also tricky a bit. Certainly, if an individual came to be regarded as a saint, this indicates church approval. It must be remembered, however, that in the patristic age, the Pope uh, was not yet involved in declaring uh, individuals from far-flung parts of the Christian world to be saints. Uh, in other words, the formal canonization process led by popes as we know it today to exist uh, did not become in place until around the year 1000. Well, we're talking about the church fathers of the first seven to eight centuries. So before the year 1000, the popular acclaim of an individual as a saint would seem to constitute the church's approval. Now, the four great fathers of the East, understood by the universal church as such, would be St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory Nazianzen, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Athanasius. And the great fathers of the West, the four great fathers of the West, would be St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, and St. Gregory the Great. And then there's two paragraphs in the Universal Catechism that I want to direct our listeners to today, Jack, number 78 and number 688. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us this about the Fathers of the Church. First of all, the Fathers of the Church are, are church teachers and writers of the early centuries whose teachings are a witness to the living tradition of the Church. Catechism number 78 says this, the Church's ancient teaching refers to sacred tradition as a living transmission. This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected or closely aligned to it. Through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is and all that she herself believes. For example, the sayings of the Holy Fathers are a witness to the living and life-giving presence of this tradition, showing how it, its riches are poured out in the practice and life of the church 
in her own belief and in her prayer, including her liturgical prayer. And number 688 says this, the church, a communion living in the faith of the apostles, which she transmits, is the place where we know the Holy Spirit in the following ways. Okay, and eight ways are given. Number one, in the scriptures he inspired, in the tradition to which the church fathers are always timeless witnesses, Number three, in the church's magisterium, which he assists, the Holy Spirit. Number four, in the sacred liturgy of the church, through its words and symbols, in which the Holy Spirit puts us into communion with Christ. Number five, in prayer, wherein he intercedes for us. Number uh, six, in the charisms and ministries by which the Spirit and the church is built up. Number eight. Seven, in the signs of the apostolic and missionary life of the church across the globe, which is also one of her motives of credibility, her constant growth throughout the centuries and her spreading to every corner of the earth. And number eight, in the witness of saints through whom he manifests his holiness and continues the work of salvation, again, the work of the Holy Spirit. In the witness of saints, many of of whom are church fathers, early church bishops, early church writers, whom he manifests his holiness and continues the work of salvation. So in other words, the writings of the fathers mean something, these eight major points, right? Again, number 78 and number 688 of the Universal Catechism kind of sums up how it is the work and writings of the church fathers through these four criterion of antiquity, orthodoxy, uh, holiness of life, and approval by the church, how their writings and their work trickle down beautifully in the living tradition of the church and her magisterium, and coupled with sacred scripture, is what provides us with what's called the sacred deposit of faith, that heritage of faith uh, contained in that sacred deposit, made up by teachings made known to us through sacred scripture, sacred tradition, the magisterium, by which we embrace and know as the truth to put ourselves on the path of salvation, as Philippians 2.12 says so beautifully, work out your salvation. And we do that by looking at all three of the three-legged, uh, the, all three legs of the three-legged stool. Again, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium, and the church fathers are a huge part of this. So again, the great fathers of the East, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory Nazianzen, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Athanasius, and the great fathers of the West, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, and St. Gregory the Great. But in those two categories of church fathers of East and West, we have a, over 75 church fathers total, giving us the truth from the first seven to eight centuries of the church. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Brand new book from EWTN Publishing for the month of July, The Roots of a Christian Civilization. First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by our very own Father Brian Mullady. 
The Roots of a Christian Civilization is your compendium on Catholic social teachings in these incisive pages. Father Brian Milady answers the question, should law implement morality or not? Father provides you with a compendium of accessible answers to a range of questions on spiritual and moral theology. Uh, He explains the dangers of both liberal capitalism and Marxism. You'll find out how to live your life in Christ regardless of your vocation to attain personal fulfillment and much more. The Roots of a Christian Civilization, First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by Father Brian Milady. A new book from EWTN Publishing. It's available at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic, shop EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833 288 3986. First up today is Mark in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Mark, you're on with Father Wade. Hello, Father. Hello. Thank you for calling, Mark. We appreciate your call. Thank you. I have a question about scientific laws, matter, energy, and I know laws are atheist science, and I know there's moral science. And I don't quite understand how to explain this to a atheistic science law person. Okay, great, great question. Well, we want to look primarily to St. Thomas Aquinas's five proofs for the existence of God, because they all bear on scientific theory and valid scientific theory. So, for example, the argument for motion. St. Thomas Aquinas would argue that since everything that moves must be moved by another— there must therefore exist an unmoved mover where it all begins with, one who is himself unmoved, a principle that itself is unmoved, and that unmoved mover we call God. Number two, the argument from efficient cause, that this one tells us that the sequence of causes which make up this universe must have a first cause, okay, that itself was not caused, all right? Um, the argument to necessary being, in other words, since all existent things uh, depend upon other things for their existence, there must exist at least one thing that is not dependent, and so it is a necessary being, okay, because it's not dependent upon anything else. And then the argument from gradation tells us that since all existent things can be compared to such qualities as degrees of goodness, for example, there must exist exist something that is absolutely good being in and of itself per se, from which all other gradations of of goodness of being flow from, okay? Uh, Air, for example, sunshine that we need to live, the water, etc., okay? Uh, All these things, and even even the water, going back to motion, you know, it's flowing. There must be an an, an unmoved mover, okay? All All of these are somewhat tied to one another, but each one stands on its own, in regards to its category, right? Uh, And then number five, the argument from design, uh, this states that the intricate design and order of existent things and natural processes imply that a greater designer exists, okay? So um, 
really, he gets all this from his Aristotelian background. He studied uh, Aristotle so much, St. Thomas Aquinas, and this would be uh, the Aristotelian science that Thomas is applying to what was known at that time, you know. Uh, Thomas's five ways, or his five proofs is what they're common, commonly called, uh, for the existence of God are summarized together with, with some standard um, objections that he addresses in his Summa Theologica. And so this is where I would direct you to the Summa to read the objections that, let's, for example, secularists, or in modern day in 2023, agnostics or atheists would give, and see how Thomas addresses those, those ob objections, because he addresses them all. Um, the arguments he, that he gives for the five proofs, again, are, are argument from motion, argument from efficient cause, argument from necessary being, argument from gradations of goodness, and argument from design, okay? And in a synthesis would be the argument motion, um, argument from efficient cause, argument from necessary being, argument from gradation, uh, that's the goodness one, and argument from design. Great question, and they're also uh, addressed in the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, so you wanna take a look at that as well, because the Catechism of the Catholic Church also addresses the scientific question. And remember, we see faith itself as a science. Okay, so you want to look in that section on faith, of informing the intellect and enlightening the intellect. And I think it's important, too, we say that the two chief effects, that's with an E, not an A, the two chief effects of the fall of our first parents uh, that, who ushered in the original sin, that ushered in the original sin, the two chief effects themselves, would be a darkened intellect and a weakened will, where before the fall of our first parents, we had an enlightened intellect and a strengthened will. But after the fall of our first parents, the enlightened intellect became darkened, the strengthened will became weakened. And so this is why we have a hard time uh, grasping these truths of the existence of God, okay? But, but, but we see faith itself as uh, its, its own, and, and a higher science, St. Thomas said, higher science. Uh, a great question. Thank you so much, Mark. So again, I, I urge you to look at the Summa on the Five Proofs for the Existence of God by St. Thomas Aquinas, his greatest work, and also the section of the Catechism that addresses the Five Proofs, as well as the section on faith, especially the introduction on faith. Thank you so much for your call today. 833-288-EWTN. It's our toll-free number. A free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3987. We head next to Detroit, Michigan. Anne is listening on Ave Maria Radio. Anne, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Hello. Um, Thank you, Anne. I, I, have a question. I have a question about the levels of heaven. Um, the first time I heard about it, I thought it was a Protestant thing, and I know that Protestants believe you go straight to heaven, and so the levels idea kind of made sense to me. But as Catholics, we believe in purgatory, and we believe that we're purified and perfected before we go to heaven. So I don't understand the levels thing for Catholics. And I have heard that um, that because of like the choirs of angels, like the seraphim and cherubim that those are on different levels so yeah i guess i'm just trying to understand the catholic view of levels of heaven okay great question so don't confuse the purgatory doctrine with the heaven doctrine based on one's charity lived in this life having a bearing on their gradation of happiness in heaven in heaven everybody's at their absolute optimum of happiness but that level of happiness is based on the degree of charity lived on earth. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Uh, purgatory is an entirely different doctrine. So your question revolves solely about heaven. And we get this from John 
14, 2, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 14, verse 2, when our Lord himself says, my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Uh, another translation uh, says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. Uh, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And then we've had saints, uh, for example, who have written on this very topic, like like St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle, where she talks about the different levels of the so-called mansions. These are based on the degree of charity lived. And there's a beautiful story of St. Therese of Lisieux, one of the doctors of the church, with her sisters. I've told this before on Open Line Tuesday, where she just couldn't get it, how there'd be different levels of happiness in heaven, and yet everybody's at their optimum. Nobody's jealous of the other one. And uh, her oldest sister, Pauline, said... Uh, well, let me explain it to you this way. So she goes to the kitchen and gets five different size glasses, fills each one to the brim with water, and says, the water is the happiness, the glass itself is the level of heaven you're in, and you're at your absolute happiness. It can't be any more fuller. And then she gave each glass size to each of the sisters present there according to their age. The oldest one got the, the, the largest glass, and Therese is the youngest, got the smallest glass. And Therese blurted out, oh, now I get it, but I want this one. And then she grabbed Pauline's tallest glass filled to the rim with water. She didn't want her smallest glass also filled to the rim with water. Okay, even though that would have been her optimum happiness. Therese was saying, I want to meet charity now in full while still living. I want to focus on love and charity now. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, we're told in the New Testament. Therese, Therese got the memo. She wanted the, the biggest mansion, the highest mansion in heaven. And there will be multiple people in the same mansion. It's not to say that everybody has their own individual mansion, necessarily. The church is silent on that. What we do know about heaven is that everybody is, their ab is at their absolute optimum of happiness in heaven. That's the main thing. So the writings of the saints, their approved writings, also scripture itself, namely John 14, 2. And none of this is to be confused. The church's teachings on charity, hope, and, and faith, the three what are called the three theological virtues. Um, you know, faith and hope cease in heaven because their object will have been obtained in heaven, God. God is the object of faith and God is the object of hope. So there's no need for faith in heaven. There's no need for hope in heaven. Two of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, will cease for persons in heaven. But love will continue to exist in heaven because God is love, 1 John uh, 4. 1 John 4, 14, I believe. God is love, St. John tells us, the same author of the Gospel of John, who gives us John 14, uh, verse 2, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? So everybody has their proper place in heaven, and it's based on charity practiced in this life. And after this life, we can no longer merit for ourselves. Does this help you out, Anne? Oh, yes, it does. I have one little follow-up. Um, okay. Are, if, you know, are, will we still be able to see our loved ones if we're at different kind of levels and in different mansions, or, or well, will we still be able to see all our loved ones in heaven? Well, you mean see them, see them from heaven on earth still living? 
No, when we're together. Like, yes, in, in, in heaven there will be communio. The church teaches that de fide. There will be communion in heaven, yes. We will recognize who is in heaven by those whom we knew on earth if they are also there in heaven with us, yes. There will be full communion because the body-soul composite are reunited and we have full, full use of our faculties, uh, the faculties of the soul, namely intellect, will, memory, and imagination, so that the intellect will allow us to recognize those loved ones we knew on earth. God bless you, and we really appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Michael in the Republic of Texas, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls. The number, once again, is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love for you to give us a call at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Benizes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call. As advertised, we're heading to the Republic of Texas. Michael is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Michael, you're on with Father Wade. By the way, uh, and by the way, thank you for taking my call, and thanks for being a priest, number one. My well, th- my question you. is, yes, sir, yes, sir. My question is, my brother, he's Mormon, and I'm Catholic. I've only been Catholic 30 years, and I'm 67 years old. So anyhow, I, uh, I want to know how to pray for him. He's got stage four pancreatic cancer, and it, it spread. That's why I'm heading to Houston right now, and I, you know, I, I I put a I was lucky enough to put a scapula on my father. I was lucky enough to put a scapula on my mother, and uh, I just want to know what to do. Well, what what a, a a loving brother you are, Michael, towards your brother, and I, I'd like to, and I will definitely include your brother in my prayers. Do you care to share his first name, or would you rather not, so we can pray for him by name? Oh, his name's Gary. Okay, Gary. We'll we'll remember Gary in prayer for a, a, a blessed, provided for, and holy death, as we Catholics like to say, uh, invoking St. Joseph, the patron saint of a happy and blessed and provided for death. So number one, you want to invoke St. Joseph. You know, the reason why St. Joseph is the patron saint of a happy and holy and provided for death Uh, What the person precisely needs at their moment of death is what God provides them with for salvation. The reason why we invoke St. Joseph for that particular intention, whether the person's Catholic or not, is because of the sacred tradition that when Joseph died, he was flanked on either side of his deathbed by our Blessed Mother Mary, his spouse, 
and his foster son, Jesus Christ, that they were both present when he died, when he expired from this life, when he passed from this life, St. Joseph, the guardian of the Redeemer, and the protector of Holy Church, and the patron saint of a holy and happy death. The second thing I would definitely want to do is pray a divine mercy chaplet and on a continuum for your brother. You know, even though he doesn't share your Catholic faith, you know, I'm sure he would want the mercy of God invoked on his behalf for his soul. And that's very, very important. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful prayer. It only takes about seven minutes to pray. If you don't know how to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, you can find it simply enough online. It comes to us from the fully approved uh, private revelations of St. Faustina Kowalska. It's extremely scriptural, as is the rosary, which brings me to the third thing that you could do for your brother, and that is to uh, pray a rosary for him. Uh, again, maybe daily from now till his passing, uh, and, and invoke God's will for him for a holy and, and, and provided for and, and happy death, and even a, a cure. You know, I've heard of miracles happening, uh, even with very, very aggressive cancers like pancreatic, which is what my own mother passed away from, pancreatic cancer, back in 2003. And then above these private devotions of the rosary, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and also praying to St. Joseph very specifically, uh, we have the higher and highest form of prayer, and that is the liturgical prayer of the church, the source and summit of the entire Christian life, is to have a mass said for your brother for a holy and provided for and happy death, um, that all the graces for his salvation will be present at the moment of his passing. Um, whether purgative or straight to heaven, we leave to the mercy of God but definitely for him to be saved. And remember, the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. Purgatory is not just for Catholics. Uh, heaven immediately is not just for Catholics. Uh, it's for anyone who dies not in a state of purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin. And we pray that your brother indeed does not die in a state of purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin. And if they don't die in that state... Uh, they can be saved either by entering heaven immediately or through a prior purgation, depending on their attachment to sin, quote-unquote, as the church teaches in that regard. And so um, we, we want to uh, uh, have masses said for him. As I said, purgatory is not just for Catholics. Neither are masses just for Catholics. You can have a, a mass said for, the, for your brother in these final days or even hours of his life, uh, and you can uh, also have masses said for him as a suffrage for him uh, for the blessed repose of his soul after he passes. And so remember the liturgical prayer of the church, the universal piety of the church, uh, usurps the, the personal piety of the individual or the private revelation that the church says that one can believe in, provided it's fully approved, which the rosary and the chaplet and the devotion to St. Joseph are all fully approved by the church and have the church's uh, approval and sanction. But nevertheless, we can never forget the celebration of the Eucharist. And uh, while your brother is a Mormon, never received the Eucharist, we can still have the Eucharist celebrated on his behalf. Do these four main ways uh, assist you, Michael, in giving you some ideas? Yes, sir, and it's funny, you you know, you said the Divine Mercy, I say that, I say the Rosary every day, and I always include him in that, and, Absolutely. Uh, and I got, a, and I brought a, it's so, I mean, it's funny how God works, I, I brought a scapula and it's St. Joseph's on it, and that's my patron saint when I got baptized, okay. so, it's, well, and my mother passed away in 2003, as well as pancreatic cancer, so this was meant to be to call you. 
Well, praise God for that. And you know, you don't know the state you'll find your brother in. I don't know if he'll be cognizant or aware or audible or auricular when you see him. But ask him, say, brother, may I, may I pin uh, the brown scapular to your t-shirt or to the, the side of your bed there at the mattress and the sheet? May I, may I pin the scapular there? And you never know. He might say, yes, you mentioned the scapular because of the, 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 the Sabatine privilege of, of the fact that if the soul does go to purgatory, that it would be released the first Saturday after its death. Again, that's private revelation, but it is a, a, an approved revelation of the Church, uh, granted approbation by many popes, in fact. So, you know, even though this wasn't your brother's um, patrimony of belief, we could say, not being a Catholic himself, but rather being a Mormon, you'll never know if he would let you or permit you to to pin the scapular either to him or to somewhere on his bed uh, unless you ask him. And you never know when somebody is in a state like that, they're, they're open to anything. And, uh, and so you want, you want to be able to ask him that question, but definitely offer the, have the masses offered for him. And don't forget the masses offered for him, Michael, after he dies as well. That's very, very important. And God's grace moves amazingly. And we just got to be open to that with these various means that Holy Mother Church has given us. I mean, the Eucharistic prayer alone, how many time does the, times does the Eucharistic prayer mention the reality of death and to save us from final damnation. I mean, we mention this constantly throughout the celebration of the Mass, because we're a people of hope. We wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, meaning both the particular judgment when one dies individually, and also the general judgment when he comes again. So God bless you, Michael, for being the brother that you are, and having a loving care and concern for the blessed repose of your own brother, who's dying. And, and I will remember Gary in my prayers. I'll add him to my prayer list, and I will remember him uh, in my prayer periods remaining this day, namely Vespers and Compline, especially in a very special way. Thank you so much, Michael, for your call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you, and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Diana is a first-time caller in northern Kentucky, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Diana, you're on with Father Wade. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My call is similar uh, to the Michael. I, I'm, I wasn't a strong believer in the purgatory, and I've had family members that have passed. My father and uh, a mother, of course, have passed, and a brother or two. And uh, is there something I can do? Uh, can I even have a mass said for them at this stage, even though it's been a few years? Oh, absolutely, uh, Bonnie. Absolutely, you can you can have a mass celebrated uh, for any anyone who's passed. You you can have a mass said for all deceased members of the such and such family, and it would appear as such in the bulletin of the ch- parish church if you want it to. If you'd rather give it anonymously, just tell the parish secretary. I would just like the word anonymous put in the bulletin, and I don't want any specific mentioning to the family. Or, but but you know, and God knows what that mass is being offered for. But some people like to put for all the uh, living and deceased members of the Smith family, or for all living and deceased members, or all deceased members of the of the Jones family, of, or uh, for all deceased members of the John and Mary Jones family, you know. So it's it, you make it more specific, and that's a beautiful thing to do. Or for the individual person having their name uh, listed uh, for the mass and having the mass said for them by name per se. And if you 
want the name listed in the parish bulletin, usually a little cross goes next to their name in the parish bulletin, implying that they are, that they are deceased. And so it's for the blessed repose of the soul of Mr. John Jones, for example, and the cross appears next to his name in the parish bulletin, so we know he's deceased, and we also know he's deceased by virtue of the fact that it says, for the blessed repose of the soul of. But not every bulletin puts those words in, and so we rely only on the little cross appearing next to their name to know that they're deceased and we're praying for their soul. And then also, going back to private revelation, you can, you know, your regular daily Divine Mercy Chaplet, your daily five-decade rosary, you don't even have to pray an extra rosary or an extra chaplet, just your regular daily rosary, your daily regular chaplet. Lift up your, your relatives and friends who have died, and that you're offering, along with your other regular intentions for your daily chaplet and your daily rosary, you're offering up these prayers as suffrages for your deceased loved ones who have passed, both family, relatives, and friends. And family, whether they're blood family or whether they're family members through marriage, you know, um, you, can, you can offer up for their souls. So great question. And yes, your, your question beautifully dovetails, uh, Diana, with uh, Michaels, who came just before you. Thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. And Diana, you and anyone else who finds themselves in that situation, another uh, resource that's available to you, my wife's apostolate, Women of Grace. If you go to womenofgrace.com, they have a uh, relationship with uh, Monsignor Matthew O'Don of the Archdiocese of Gulu in northern Uganda, and they will not only say masses for your loved ones, but they will also... Uh, say Gregorian masses for your loved ones. And um, so that's a beautiful way to uh, remember them and to help expiate their situation uh, in purgatory if that's where they should find themselves. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Bonnie is a first-time caller in Omaha, Nebraska, listening to EWTN Radio today on Spirit Catholic Radio. Bonnie, you're on with Father Wade. Okay, thank you. Um, I wasn't, uh, I'm not a cradle Catholic, and I became Catholic in 2013, so I'm trying to learn, learn, learn. And uh, I have a prayer card here for Archangel St. Michael, and I was just wondering if he's an archangel, which he is, why did he need to be made a saint? Yeah, it's kind of tied to why he has a name. He's important enough to be named uh, by Scripture itself, by God's own design through the work of the sacred author of the particular books that mention St. Michael, like the Book of Revelation, the Book of the Apocalypse. But even more so, the word saint comes from sancte, which simply means holy, and the archangels that remain God's helpers are particularly holy, like Raphael, okay, the guide of travelers, uh, Michael, the one who's the guide in time of a, especially battle and fierce battle, and Gabriel, who's the a special holy one, especially the holy one at the times of great announcements, like at the Annunciation to Mary. Uh, the Annunciation of Mary about being the mother of God. So if, if she accepted, of course, she gave her fiat. So it simply means holy one. That, that's all saint means. And because the angels are, are pure intellectual, rational spirit, they can be addressed and they know they're being addressed just like a human would if you address a human. So while the angels don't have bodies, they do have 
pure intellect, ra keen rational intellect and being. So the holy ones we pray to, not the evil angels that fell, those are the devils that remain our tempters on earth, but the good angels that remain in God's service remain our helpers on earth, while the fallen ones remain our tempters on earth. So the good angels, the holy angels, which is what sancte means, or sanctus, holy, 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 sanctus, 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 like at the sanctus part of the mass, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, those are actually words that we're mimicking at that part of the mass that the angels are saying before the throne of Almighty God. That's why that particular part of the mass is so, is so beautiful. Um, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These are the words of the angels in the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse, that are addressing God, and we're mimicking their words. If we can do it, they can do it. They're pure, rational, intellectual spirit. They are holy in that they stayed God's helpers and did not go against him with Lucifer and his, and his cohorts in crime who fell with him. And of course, Lucifer means light. And so many of the church fathers, we talked about the church fathers during our springboard, many of the church fathers posit this. They say that Lucifer could have been the highest of the angels, the bearer of light, right? Uh, similar to Christ's own name, uh, meaning anointed one. But, but Lucifer, is, as the bearer of light, could have been the highest among the angels themselves, and yet he rejected God. Non serviam, I will not serve, and, was, and so was cast down to hell with those followers of his who would not serve God either, meaning the other angels. But those who remain God's helpers and loyal to him are the holy ones, the sancte, right? Sancte, holy. And that's where we get the English word saint from. It means holy. And of course, when a, when a human person is canonized a saint, it's based on their heroic virtue, thus their holiness, uh, their heroic virtue practiced on earth while still having lived on earth, while still living on earth. They practiced heroic to a, uh, uh, they practiced virtue, excuse me, to a heroic degree. And so that's, that's a type of holiness. That is holiness when they can overcome adversity. So I like to remind people when we canonize saints, you watch a beautiful formal canonization mass, for example, on EWTN. Uh, it, it's a, that, that mass that you're watching live, for example, from Rome, it's, it's first and foremost a solemn declaration by Holy Mother Church that this soul is now definitively in heaven, right? Wrong. <laughs> That's secondary. <laughs> what what organization mass does, first and foremost, primarily, is that it's a formal declaration that while still living on earth, this person lived virtue to a heroic degree, and now because of that, secondarily, this formal mass in St. Peter's Basilica, for example, that's being broadcast live on EWTN, secondarily, it's proclaiming that this person is now, has their soul now in heaven definitively by the authority of the church. Their soul is now definitively in heaven. That's secondarily, primarily about the canonization mass is that it's a formal declaration of the church and celebration of the liturgy that while still living on earth, they lived virtue to a heroic degree. And not always either. They had their issues, dependencies, and addictions while still living on earth, like Augustine with his lust, or Padre Pio with his anger, or St. Camillus de Lalas with his gambling addiction. But they overcame it. They overcame their issue, dependency, and addiction. So the angels who remain God's helpers are also the holy ones, and this is why we call them saints, sancte, holy. And the ones that are named in Scripture, which are the archangels, uh, we know there are seven, three are named, Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael. 
but seven are mentioned uh, of the, the, in the book of Revelation that seven serve God at his throne, but only three are named. And so um, we can name them and have a more of a personal relationship with them, I guess you could say, precisely because they're named as we would name a human. Does that help you out, Bonnie? It sure does. I okay, great. It. We thank you so much for your call, and, and God bless you, and, and for entering the church at, in 2013, I think you said, and God bless your Catholicism abundantly, and may you become a great evangelizer to others. God bless you now. Got a great way for you to start your day here on EWTN Radio, Monday through Friday morning at 5.15 Eastern Time. Peter Herbeck provides Fire on Earth. A uh, compelling look at the new evangelization through inspiring teachings, interviews, and testimonies. Peter's insights will help Catholics acquire the tools they need to do their part in the new evangelization. That's Fire on Earth with uh, Peter Herbeck, 5.15 Eastern Time in the morning on EWTN Radio. Next stop is Vero Beach, Florida. Gina is a first-time caller listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Gina, you're on with Father Wade. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I just have a question. My 77-year-old brother is raising his 10-year-old severely autistic uh, grandson, Matthew, and Matthew has not been baptized. And I've talked to my brother about it, and um, Matthew, he has behavior problems, and he has to wear a band in case he will elope on you, and uh, just logistics of getting him to a church for a baptism. I don't foresee happening. And my brother did baptize him on his own. Um, I told him I didn't think that was enough. and that. Um, but is that enough for that my brother baptized him? Well, technically, uh, a, a layperson baptizing is in danger of death, according to the Church's teaching. Not, not in a case where, where there's no hope otherwise of the person... Uh, being baptized. Is your brother that baptized him, is he the father of this autistic uh, nephew no, of yours? No, the grand, uh, he's the grandfather. Okay, he's the grandfather. Your brother's the grandfather. Okay, so the Church teaches that uh, uh, a baptism by a layperson outside of the official rite of the Church, R-I-T-E, outside the official ritual of the Church, done by a, a bishop, priest, or deacon, because deacons can baptize, remember, um, is only in a case of in danger of death. So what I would do is, you know, you can have severely autistic individuals who vary in regards to what they're able to comprehend intellectually. So I don't know if, if, if your brother's grandson is able to understand when he's at a moment of more calmness uh, what baptism is and if he's willing to be baptized, because if there are those lucid moments where he's calm and lucid and understands, then uh, with with the uh, official guardian's permission, your grandfather can set up an appointment with the parish priest to have him baptized, because indeed he wants to be baptized. Um, also, you have autistic individuals who are their own, after age 18, they, they function enough that they are their, their own person legitimately by law. They can make their own decisions. But then you have others, because they're not, they have a relative who stands in lawfully for them. I don't know what the case is with your brother's grandson. If, if he has lucid moments where he can be calm at a moment and, and understand things that are happening, 
maybe he could try to be evangelized, if even simply, like a danger of death situation, but evangelized simply to embrace Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior to be baptized, and maybe he would, he would accept that. And if he's lawfully his own person in law, his own juridical person in law, then he can make that decision on his own. If he's not, and one of his parents are his legitimate ju- juridical person in law, and your, grandf- your brother is only, for lack of a better phrase, adult sitting him, adult sitting him, then your brother doesn't have that authority to make that decision on the baptism. I can appreciate your wanting your grandnephew, I believe he would be, your grandnephew uh, baptized, but we want it to be done appropriately and, and properly, not only according to, to church ecclesiastical law, but according to respecting the authority of the a proper guardian, for example. So there's a lot of things that come into play here. And, and while it's, it's noble, um, Gina, that you want to get him baptized, these questions would have to be asked first. So the best thing to do is some of these questions I've posited to you, like, is he functional on his own? And does he have lucid moments where he's calm? Share that with your parish priest. Find out exactly who his legal guardian is or if he's his own. And then maybe the priest can have a meeting with him with the proper permissions already in place. And then the priest can assess the situation. That's how I would go about doing it. You definitely would not require such an individual to go through a, an official year-long RCIA program. There'd be no need for that. But um, you want these initial questions answered first so you can brief the parish priest, and hopefully the parish priest would have uh, the know-how and the wherewithal to address the legal guardian and your grandnephew himself to explain you know, what, what baptism entails and what the belief entails, and to simply do it. It would just take a matter of moments to baptize him. But I would say that, that definitely, according to the mind of the church, because it was not a, a, a life or uh, not a death, uh, in danger of death situation, that particular baptism that the grandfather did to him would not sustain validity. Um, so you'd want to ans- answer these other questions first and then get, ask the priest to get involved. Does that help you out? Thank you so much. Okay, you're most welcome. God bless you now. And very quickly, we'll head to Kelly in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kelly, just a couple minutes left with Father Wade. What is your report? (laughs) This is a follow-up, Father Wade. About a month ago, I called in about our 93-year-old mom, mom mom-in-law, whether she was serious about getting baptized, and I was really struggling with it. So was my husband. And you were very kind, gave us sound advice, and we followed up with our parish priest, who's amazing. And long story short, she came into the Catholic Church uh, this past Thursday, and it's just been amazing. So, 94. 94. (laughs) What a beautiful, beautiful praise report that is, Kelly. Thank you so, so much for calling us back on Open Line Tuesday and letting us know, and it dovetails beautifully with the woman... uh, who was just before you, Gina, regarding her grandnephew, it, it shows that it's never too late and God's graces are there at the moment with the loving relatives who are there attempting to do what's right. And you and your husband did just that. And thank you so much for sharing. What a, what a great witness phone call as well, Kelly. Thank you so, so much. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall. 
Call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>